The 24th chapter of the book of Acts, there's always tomorrow. That's the theme we want to develop tonight. The 24th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning at verse 10, is where we begin. A contemporary writer takes us into the black abyss where um, Satan and his henchmen are in session. And Satan is asking, who will persuade men for me that I might accomplish the ruin of their souls? And one of Satan's men, one of Satan's demons said, I'll go to the earth and I'll tell people there is no heaven, that it's just a dream and a fantasy. But Satan, the great deceiver, said, it will not do because men have been told too long that there is a heaven and the enemy God has written a book and in this book he says there is a heaven and that it is a place of blessing and joy and comfort and good. Another one of the henchmen said, I have it, I'll go to, he I'll go to earth and I'll say there is no hell. It will not work, said the father of lies, because the same enemy God has said in his book, has told about in his book, more about hell than he has about heaven. And if nothing else, man's own conscience would convict him of the fact that there is a time of great reckoning. I need something that will persuade all classes and all cultures. I need someone to persuade all claims. A third henchman stood to say, I have it. I'll go to earth and I will not say there is no heaven. I will not say there is no hell, but I will say there is no hurry. There is no hurry. What a masterful piece of propaganda. The common word for that is procrastination. A wife must have written these words when you try to get a man to do a job. He goes through three periods. The first is contemplation of how to do it. The second is contemplation of when to do it. And the third is contemplation we all like to put things off, don't we? Procrastination is my sin. It brings me naught but sorrow. I should stop, and in fact I will, beginning with tomorrow. We procrastinate in our spiritual life. There's always tomorrow. Tomorrow I will begin my walk with God. Tomorrow I'll begin my quiet time. There's always tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll begin to witness of my faith. Tomorrow I'll begin to tithe. There's always tomorrow. And some of you have been Christians for years and you're no further down the road in your Christian life than you were yesterday. But there's always tomorrow, isn't there? And some of you tonight have been planning, have been, have been deciding for years to become a Christian and you're lost and still lost, but there's always tomorrow. This passage deals with procrastination. It is the masterful passage on tomorrow. 
And it is the master, and it reveals the master procrastinator. His name is Felix, and he's procrastinated most of his life. Now, to get where we're going on this outline, we need to get a series of accusations that are found in verses 5 and 6. And they're 1, 2, 3 in the outline. The accusations that were brought against the Apostle Paul were three. The first was that he was a revolutionary. This man, says verse 5, is a troublemaker. He's, he's, a, he's a problem causer. He's a disturber of people. And the Roman Empire just could not countenance, could not couch any kind of disturbance as they tried to control people. Here was a revolutionary, a threat. The second accusation brought against him was that he was a religious fanatic. He was the leader of a cult. He was the leader of this sect, this cult group that was established up in Capernaum by that Nazarene named Jesus. He's the same kind of man. As a matter of fact, he's the leader of the same cult as this Nazarene. And you know what we did to that man. And the third accusation is in verse 6. He's a temple desecrator based upon these rumors that were spread from a, a passage before, at a time before. But Paul was really calm in the face of all these accusations. He knows that the Spirit of God is in control and there's no reason to panic when God is in control. And so beginning verse 10, he begins to answer the charges. I want you to notice how he answers, how he begins at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, in defense of the first accusation that he was a troublemaker, he gives, he, he, he answers with three statements in defense of the accusation that he's a troublemaker. He says, I am innocent, and for three reasons. Verse 11, because I didn't have time to be a troublemaker. I was just there 12 days. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to cause any trouble. If I had, I wouldn't have had time to do it just being there 12 days. Secondly, verse 12, I wasn't interested in starting trouble. I went to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. I just went there to worship God. And the third answer, verse 13, there is no proof to the charge. You bring proof to the charge that I'm a troublemaker. Bring some evidence of it. Now the second defense, beginning in verse 14. I'm innocent of the charges of being the leader of a cult. And he sets forth four points of theology. If you want to notice Paul's theology in a thumbnail sketch, you'll find it beginning in verse 14. And there's another sermon found there, really. How you identify a cult. How can you identify a cult? If somebody comes to your door with this kind of a strange teaching and yet... There's something appealing about it and you want to know is this a cult group or what? In verse 14 there is a perfect statement of theology as to how to identify a cult group. Number one, 
in answering the, in, in answering the charge, I'm the leader of the cult, he said, four points of theology. Number one, I serve Jehovah God. Verse 14. The word therefore God is Jehovah, and it's that word that means the creator, the upholder, the modern governor of the universe. Now, a person who is not a member of the cult of a cult is a person who serves Jehovah God, that is, the God of creation, the God who controls the universe, the God who upholds and sustains life. And if anybody comes to you with some kind of teaching that deifies a man or diminishes one's concept of the God of creation, you know that is a cult and it's a heresy. Secondly, he said, I believe the scriptures. I believe what the Bible says. I believe what God has written. I hold to the scriptures. And you know right offhand immediately if somebody comes to you and says, we believe the Bible and, and they have these other books that kind of parallel the Bible and explain the Bible or amplify the Bible, you know that's suspect. Even more, it is, it is heresy. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not a leader of a cult because I believe what God has written. Third, verse 15, I have hope in God. That is, I believe in the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. I believe in the resurrection of the saved and the lost. Now there, just a few months back, I was invited to go over and meet with a cult group. Um, I, I am uh, literally tempted to give the name, but I, I want. But I was invited to go over one Wednesday night to sit down and visit with this cult group, and we talked about Christian belief and their belief. And one of the glaring things that this cult did not believe was that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, a Christian is a person who believes in Jesus Christ and that he was resurrected from the dead. And to believe in his resurrection is to believe in his death, the scope of that crucifixion and resurrection. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Christ who was crucified and raised the third day. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that you are not a believer. You're an antichrist, an anti-believer, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is of God and that he was raised after having been crucified. And then 4, verse 16, he said, I maintain a blameless conscience. Now there is some intensity to the life of the Apostle Paul and some consistency not only does he believe the right things, but he lives the right way. That's dynamically important to the Christian faith. There's more than just orthodoxy. There must be orthopraxy. I, it's not enough to believe the right things. A man must live the right way. And so the Apostle Paul says, I have a clean conscience both with God and with man. And that cut right to the heart of Felix. For this governor was living with a wife he had seduced from another man when she was 16 years old. She was his third wife and not 20 years old. 
And the Apostle Paul is saying, I have a clear conscience with man and I have a clear conscience with God. There is the third defense, beginning in verse 17 through 21. And just to say two things about it, he said, let the Jews bring the charge and let the Sanhedrin bring the charge. If there's an ac accusation concerning that third charge, that third accusation, then let the Jews come and declare it and let the Sanhedrin bring the charge. Now notice Felix's reaction. We're on back page and hustling on, but don't get your hopes up. We're, um, we're going to be on time, but not early. So hang in there, will you? Felix's reaction. Felix's reaction is procrastination. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Now I want you to just to look back at chapter 23 and, and, and notice something. Chapter 23, verse 26. For when they brought the Apostle Paul to Caesarea, and that was a miracle in itself, and we talked about that one Sunday evening pass. When they brought um, the Apostle Paul to Caesarea, to Felix, Lysias sent a letter along with the Apostle, and that letter is that passage there from verses 26 to 30. And in this letter, if you'll read it, you'll see that Lysias says, I'm sending this man to you and it's for you to judge him. And Felix is saying, I'll wait till Lysias comes and then I'll make my decision about you. Procrastination. But there comes a time, now listen, there comes a time when every one of us has to decide for himself what he's going to do with Jesus. Um, let me tell you my little football story. <laughs> Grew up in this little old um, town out in West Texas and came out for football and, uh, and uh, because of a serious uh, traffic accident just before ball season started, two of our main players were killed. That's a tragic story in itself. But because the the guy I was playing backup to in, in a fall workout was killed in this car wreck. I was put into the starting lineup. I weighed 140 pounds, just a little skinny kid as a freshman. And we were ready to play Merkel, Texas. I know you've heard of the Merkel Badgers. <laughs> and uh, Merkel was coming to town. <laughs> And Merkel, uh, at that time, I wish I had a chalk. I feel so much like John Madden anyway after doing that ball game the other night. I wish I had a chalkboard and outland diagram the, the offense that Merkel ran. Uh, they ran from a double wing formation. That means that on behind the end, on both sides of the line, they had one of their back men. And they had... Um, uh, a blocking back and a tailback. That is the guy that just centered the ball straight to him and he just ran with it, just no handoff or nothing. And this blocking back was, um, 
Well, he was about um, Billy Lawler's height and uh, Brett Count's weight. If you can get that picture, he was a monster and he was about this tall. He was like a cannonball. And what they'd do, they'd just center the ball to the tailback and the, and the wing back on the side they want to run around, he'd block down on the end and this, this blocking back would come around that end, boy, just full steam ahead, leading interference. And they'd run that side one side time and run the other side one time. And I played right end on defense. And the coach called me into the office. I could tell by the tremble in his voice that he was afraid I couldn't handle it. Sweat on his brow and we talked. He said, now, Gerald, he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. He said, when that blocking back comes around your end, he said, you can do one, three things. He said, you can dodge to the inside, and all they'll do is just bump you inside, and they'll go around you. And he said, you can kind of dodge to the outside, and they'll just bump you to the outside and cut inside of you. He said, the third thing is what you got to do. I said, oh, here it comes. He said, he said, when that blocking back comes around that end, he said, I want you to meet him head on. That's what I was afraid he was going to say. <laughs> and when that blocking back came around that end all night long, he didn't even run the other side. <laughs> all night long, it was... It was hit him head on, meet him head on. Now I'm talking to you tonight about something much more serious than that. There comes a time when you have to meet Jesus Christ head up, head on. There's no way to dodge him any longer. And as some of you in college, as some of you in high school, you've done a real fancy job of sidestepping and doing some good footwork. But you have to meet him eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, guard, head on. And sometimes he comes to us and he says, this is what I want for your life. I want you to preach and you've dodged that for a long time, haven't you? And sometimes he comes to us as, a, as parents and he says, this is the way I want you, your home life. This is it right here. It's time to decide. It's head up. And you can put that off and you can sidestep but sooner or later, you're going to have to come face to face with a decision of the will of God for your life. Whether it's the call to the ministry, whether it's the call to salvation, whether it's the call to a walk that is more than just a Sunday morning churchianity, it's the walk of God. Sometime or another, you have to make that head up decision. Now, this is the reason why Felix wanted to put him off. He says, but Felix having a more exact knowledge about the way. Now, now Felix knew more about Jesus Christ than the Sanhedrin uh, gave him credit for. Uh, where did he learn that? I want you to turn back to chapter 21. I'll show you something interesting. 
Well, it's interesting to me. <laughs> Chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. Now look at this and get a, get a little excited about this. Let me show you something, how the, the penetrating germ of the gospel here. Verse 18, now the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Now remember where they are. They're in Caesarea. They're in the, they're in the city of the governor Felix. They're in the city where the, the, the governor's mansion is. And now the following day we went there and after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles. I think I'm going to get back to verse 8. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and into the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. And Philip was one of those original uh, deacons. Verse, verse, verse 8 now in verse 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he had heard this, we heard this, we as, as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now notice what was going on in Caesarea. There was a house there where Philip lived. And he had four daughters who were prophetesses. And there was this group of Christians that lived there in, in Caesarea that were meeting and, and were worshiping God together. And this Christianity of these, the, this small group of people had permeated and infiltrated even to the governor's mansion. I can just see them one night gathering for EE, getting their little visitation cards. And Philip gets his car and he looks on there and the address is number one Caesarea place. He said, Damn, that's the governor's mansion. But the governor lives there as lost as he can be. And so they went knocking on the door, maybe not just exactly like this, but maybe some more like it than we think. And there in that governor's mansion, he sat down with Felix and pressed the claims of Christ to his heart. And he was interested in the way he knew more about Christianity than the Sanhedrin gave him credit for. He knew enough about the gospel that it was a problem with him. He knew enough that he knew he needed to believe. And he was interested in the way. And he married a Jewish by the name of Drusilla. You can tell a lot about what a man's interest is by the person he marries. Did you ever notice that? The Western manuscripts of this text, now back to chapter 24, the Western manuscripts of this text say that Drusilla was the one who wanted Paul, who wanted Felix, her husband, to bring Paul in, and she wanted to hear more about the way. I can imagine one night they were lying in bed late at night. Drusilla says to Paul, are you awake? He said, huh? She said, Drusilla says to Felix, I'm sorry, are you awake? He says, huh? And he says, are you awake? He says, I am now. 
She said, I want you to bring Paul here. I'm interested in his sermon. Well, why don't you go on back to sleep, huh? She said, no, I want, to bring, I want you to bring Paul. I want to hear what he has to say. I'm interested in this man he preaches about. So Felix says, well, if you'll go back to sleep, I'll bring him tomorrow. So he brought him in to the mansion. And verse 25, as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now when Paul came to talk to Drusilla and Felix, he didn't come to talk to them about marriage and family problems. He came to preach Jesus Christ to them. For Christ can make a difference in your marriage. Christ can make a difference in your home life. Christ can make a difference in leadership problems, in, in, in problems with the children. He just came and preached Christ to him. And so verse 25, Felix says, Go away, and when I have time, when I find time, I'll call you back. When he preached Christ to him, it says that he was frightened. And then he says, go away. When I get time, I'll ask for you again. Look at verse 26. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. And for two whole years, Felix brought Paul back and forth, back and forth from the place of his, of his imprisonment into the governor's mansion, and he listened to him over and over again. And every time he came, he preached Christ. When he preached Christ to him the first time, he was frightened. But he hoped he'd get some money out of him. Where did he get that? Verse 17, Paul said, I came, I came to Caesarea to bring some money, some offerings. That word rang a bell, Felix, mine. I'll get some money out of this man. He's got some money. He's got access to some bucks. I'm troubled tonight. You know what troubles me? I'm troubled that Felix was never frightened again. It bothers me that when he preached Christ to him, he trembled, he was frightened. But it bothers me, it troubles me that he was never frightened again. You know why that bothers me? Because it tells me that if it stirs you when you hear about Jesus Christ and it troubles you and it frightens you, if you keep on rejecting Him, it will no longer frighten you. It will no longer trouble you. If you keep on procrastinating, if you keep on dodging Him, there will come a time when the message no longer moves you. That's what troubles me. Now I see two lessons out of this. The first lesson is this, hearing this, listen. Delay dulls the edge of the sword of the Spirit. Delay dulls the edge of the sword of the Spirit. 
it is significant that we never read again that he was troubled. One day, I went to visit a man in a little old town called Lipan, Texas. I was preaching there when I was in seminary. This guy came to church. He, he, he was a great deal uh, older than I. He was an elderly man. I was just a kid, a seminary student. But he and I were good buddies. We were good buddies. And so he came to services. He came to hear me preach. We liked each other. One, one night, one day, I just, I had this friend with me, and I was just really moved, compelled to go witness to him. I'd witnessed to him many times. I went into his home, and for about an hour, I, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't use any kind of uh, witnessing technique. I just poured out my heart to him and begged him to be saved. And he said, you know, he'd say over and over, he said, you know, I want to do that. I want to be saved. And finally, we got out on our knees. I thought, well, if I can just get him on his knees, you know, we could get, I could pray, and maybe in, the, in that kind of a experience, he might pray and receive Christ. And, and I, we got on our knees. He was on his knee, and I was on his knees, and I was on mine, and we, we were, I was begging for him to be saved. He rejected. And I remember leaving that day, and I told my friend in the car, this is not some kind of a glorified uh, <laughs> sermon illustration. This is really true. I told my friend, I said, you know what? I had the strangest feeling while we were in prayer. This is the last time God would deal with that man. Second lesson. Delay blinds the mind. Delay blinds the mind with lesser issues you see, when he got to delaying his decision, he got interested in money. <laughs> he got interested in money. I'll just get old Paul and I'll get him back in here from time to time and one of these days he'll let me know where he's got all that money buried. He got interested in money. And he got interested, it says in the text, he got interested in pleasing people. I'll just delay. I won't make my decision because I've got a kingdom to run. I've got a throne on which I must preside. And I've got to please these folks. And he got interested in discussing religion. He got so caught up in this debate with the Apostle Paul that he forgot the main issue. was what he was going to do head up with Jesus Christ. That's the way procrastination always works. Now I want you to hear this because I don't preach these kinds of sermons often. One day will be the last day you'll hear the gospel. I've been praying all week. And one of the men that I've been witnessing to here in Durant, who is lost, would be here tonight. I don't think he is. One day will be the last day you'll hear this gospel. This book tells the truth. There's coming a, a resurrection. There's going to be a judgment of the righteous and the wicked, of the saved and the lost. 
Now this is not a scare tactic. This is the truth. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And there is a hurry. Would you bow your head with me? Father, trouble us tonight and stir our heart. Move upon us now, Father. Cause us to come to a decision concerning Jesus Christ. And don't allow us to dodge the issue any longer. But meet head on the decision that we have delayed and delayed for so long. And I pray that, the, that's, that this night will be the night of decision for many of us. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now the invitations are just like this. The invitation for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never invited him into your life. You've never said to him, here I take my hands away and I give you my heart. I give you the control of my life. I let you take control. If you've never done that, then you're not, you're not saved. You're separated from God. And tonight's the night to settle the issue. Tonight is the night to settle the matter. You can come and for all eternity, you can make a decision that will affect all eternity. You can give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And you can be saved forever. The second invitation is for you to deal with God's will for your life concerning church membership or the call to, it, to a ministry. Now it's time to make those kinds of decisions. The third invitation is for you to come tonight if you feel like you've drifted away from God. I know that's so easy to do. Get out of God's will and get out of the fellowship of the Lord and walk in the darkness and in the shadows. I invite you to come tonight to say, I just want to rededicate myself. I know I've been saved, but I haven't been living for God. We'll let you come right away. We invite you to come. We rejoice with you. Man, we'll clap for you. We'll rejoice. This is what we want you to do. Why don't you do it tonight? The way to be born again is to let the Spirit of God come upon your life. Is to trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Don't trust the church or baptism or good works. Just trust in Jesus. Well, you have to come to that point of time where you say, Jesus, here it is. I trust you. I invite you into my life. I accept you. Let's do it. So I just kind of feel like tonight some of you will be saved because you're lost. You won't be saved. Right now, while we stand, you come.